Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is all about golems, protectors, or perils. I am Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock here with my esteemed colleague, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. Great to be here with you, my esteemed colleague, as well. <laughs> okay. For our sixth episode, we're going to answer the question of the week talk about what we've been watching or reading since our last episode and a bit of Jewish sci-fi news. Then we'll turn to our main topic, golems, protectors, or perils. And then for our final segment from the Geniza, we'll dust off some of our favorites from the past, the Indiana Jones movie series inspired by the recent release of the fifth and probably last Indiana Jones movie. Okay, so for this week's Shaila or Sheila, depending on one's preferred <laughs> pronunciation, a question of the week. In Jewish folklore, as we'll be discussing, golems are often created to protect or assist their creators. So question is, what aspect of your life could benefit from the assistance of a golem? lawn care absolutely lawn care oh my i gosh. do not mowing my lawn i do not mow my lawn i have killed two lawnmowers in my past not not intentionally i would love to have a golem mow my lawn do the weeds kill the weeds do the plantings that would be phenomenal i've seen robotic lawnmowers around they're not quite ready for prime time yet, but that is exactly the first thing I would have a golem do is to mow my lawn. Lawns are dumb. Growing grass is dumb. Let a golem do it. How about you? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that task, but specifically I'm like, yes, I would love to have a golem do that. And also around here everyone has these lawn care services and the sound of mowers blowers all kinds of electric or gas powered things going every day of the week is crazy and i being picky and it both damages the plants and aesthetically i think is awful shearing off of bushes into these box or mm. circles that Okay. I have a lot of feelings about pruning that I developed during the pandemic. However, I'm also too lazy slash busy and tired to do it in the way that I feel is appropriate. So I would love a golem who would prune things to my specifications and not use the horrible gas powered shearing situation. But what I also thought about had to do with housework stuff. I mean, what I was thinking about is the amount of paper and stuff that my kids bring home. And I would love a golem who would just be the, the organizational system. As soon as everybody walks home, it's like, okay, what you got, put everything into where it needs to go so that we don't have these doom piles that accumulate <laughs> that you're like always trying to figure out, okay, which of these school assignments and projects and papers and all those things do we keep which can go i would like the golem to sort of take out the you know emotional attachment piece of it and just you know implement 
this system on an ongoing basis. Right. An automated soulless, meaning non-emotional filing system. That's a great mm -hmm. idea. Great idea. Yeah. Yes. Just, and then knows exactly where everything is in an detached mechanical fashion. You yeah. also raised a great point. Golems are very good for the climate. I hadn't thought about Kabbalah as magical source of energy as a climate positive thing. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yes. A whole new take on Jewish mysticism. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, now even more reasons to endorse it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Because golems basically never run out of energy as long as they, well, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But like, yeah, they have a, they tap into a, an unlimited source of energy. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. What would you listeners have a golem do for you? You can drop us an email with your answer to the question at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. So, Lindsay, what have you been watching and or reading lately? Okay, so I recently watched the Pixar movie Elemental with my kids. Of course, as usual, very well done as all Pixar productions are I don't need to get into a lot of detail about that but definitely worth watching and Did it have the make you cry moment I mean everything always has the make you cry moment I feel like the this Pixar one is known for it yeah I mean yes right there's the yes but yeah, I will, will say that as Andrew and I were, were talking about as we were planning this episode the storyline very much reflects kind of the the immigrant narrative or the first generation American narrative. And the creator was from a Korean background, but I found a lot of resonance to stories of Jewish immigrants and the, that first generation experience of both trying to adapt to the new situation and culture in which you find yourselves and also figuring out how to preserve and honor the distinctive cultural traditions that you have. And I mean, this is an ongoing thing, thing for all of us who are invested in maintaining Jewish identity and practice or any um, cultural identity and practice that may differ from the normative American default if such a thing exists, but, but yeah, I thought it was, it was very well done and, and, you know, animation was great and creative in a lot of ways that, you know, wouldn't have really occurred to me to, to think of. So I, I enjoyed it. And I've also been watching the TV series on Netflix, Charlotte, which is related to the Bridgerton series. It's kind of a spinoff talking about the backstory of Queen Charlotte. And what I really have been enjoying about it is the ways that this is, is in a lot of ways like speculative or like alternate history, going back to some of our previous discussion themes, when we were talking about speculative fiction and what fits into these genres because it imagines a Britain that this is in the 1700s is much more 
racially diverse that includes people of non-European backgrounds in the aristocracy and is in the process in this particular series of exploring how it how it is exactly like how did we get to this point in in this alternate reality where are people coming from it seems like there's some references so far i'm only a couple few episodes into sierra leone and the wealth of sierra leone and imagining an alternate history in which instead of britain extracting all of the material resources from places that they encountered as colonizers and you know leaving the people out of it that the some of the some of the people anyway seem to have retained and held on to some of that material wealth and have now come to live in or some of them have come to live in the united kingdom and are now given titles and included in the royal court, including the queen herself. We're also watching Charlotte in my household and also thoroughly enjoying it. And I'm enjoying it for all of those same reasons. You know, how did it come to be to create this diverse royal court? I've also enjoyed how that changes the fashion of, mm -hmm. of the aristocracy and gentry in you know royal london really enjoyed mm -hmm. that piece of it among other delightful parts of the whole story i like how it's yeah. back and forth between like the origin of the of charlotte becoming the queen and then kind of popping into bridgerton contemporary timeline with how things are playing out there as well mm -hmm. kind yeah. of seeing how it got it gets adapted like because in the charlotte timeline this is all new the sort they're talking about the great experiment and figuring out how to navigate this new situation and people you know, having their, their prejudices and how are we going to integrate society. But yeah, in terms of fashion, I'm thinking back, you know, season two Bridgerton with the Sharmas and there's a lot of comment about the fashion. They are coming from India. So it kind of, again, imagining like a slightly different version of we don't really get all the detail of what Britain's involvement is in India and how that may differ from how it's actually played out in history. But yeah, the clothing is cut in the styles of, you know, Britain at the time, but also using these beautiful Indian inspired fabrics that are, you know, these brocades and colors that would not be what you would typically find in European fashion of the day. Yeah. Come back to Elemental, which I have not seen, but I really like the metaphor of the immigrant family as fire. Mm. You know, are they dangerous? Are they going to warm us, help us? Fire being kind of unpredictable mm. um, and also spicy because the, the food yeah. is, you know, spicier food. And then the culture they come into being water. Are they mm -hmm. going to put out their fire and make it like everybody else? Or is the fire going to also impact the water and make it a little bit, a little mm -hmm. bit hotter? How are they going to interact in the end? I'm sure that's part of the film. I don't want to spoil it for myself. It sounds like a really great metaphor. And I'm mm -hmm. curious to see how also earth and air play out as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like earth had less of a prominent role, but yeah, it, it's definitely there. And I think there, there's another piece of it too, which is the idea of, 
flames as being transferable, which is something that, you know, we think oh, about in lovely. Jewish context. And this idea of the transfer transmission from one generation to the next is also oh. this like, transfer of a flame. And there's this scene around, you know, the father passing on the flame to the daughter, who's kind of going to be the torchbearer continues the torchbearer right and they have this literal fire that's like in their house and it almost gets extinguished by the water like they get flooded out yes. really thought about it in the in both ways you know right the risk to the fire of being extinguished but also the risk that the fire might pose to right the water people it can cause them to evaporate at least their fear around it and yeah, there's, you know, a scene, right? The food, in this case, the food is like literally like hot coals. The <laughs> business is like a restaurant or like a restaurant. It seems like a restaurant or maybe it's like a deli counter situation and like a convenience store. So again, that makes like, sense, a lot connecting of with families. a lot of the experience of many you know, Korean immigrant families to this country. I was with family in St. Louis and I we went and saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and I realized I saw it in the exact same plaza where I saw the first one 40 years ago <laughs> so it did all come full circle oh, full circle full okay. circle I thought it was a worthy conclusion if it's a conclusion probably is to the whole thing I thought they did the de-aging really well how they did mm -hmm. Indiana Jones as an 80 year old retired professor going through a divorce grieving the death of their son who died in vietnam really well mm -hmm. he just had nothing going for him in the present and he figuratively and literally wants to live in the past and i thought it was really i thought it was fun maybe a bit long but i thought it was great i thought phoebe waller bridge was fantastic she's very funny mm -hmm. had another kid kind of like short round from the temple of doom who was also very good and carried them his part of the movie very nicely i'm watching secret invasion the new marvel sort of spy thriller about the scrolls secretly invading earth that continues i watched silo season one it was an apple tv show that kind of evokes a bit of a lost slowly revealed mystery vibe you know, where are we? What's going on? How'd we get here? What's happening around us? And The City of Ember, which is a young adult novel that me and my kids read several years ago about an underground city. And they're also not quite sure why they're there, but they slowly figure out what's going on there as mm -hmm. well. And indeed had a great twist in the season finale. And I'm looking forward to season two. And I've also been watching random episodes of TV shows that all feature golems. I've been watching Gargoyles, Sopranos, X-Files, Warehouse 13, and the silent movie, The Golem, How He Came Into Our World, which we'll get more into. So that's what I've been watching lately. And we have one piece of Jewish sci-fi fantasy news. Mm. I read in Rollingstone.com, David Korenswet. He is the first Jewish person to be cast as Superman, a character created by two Jewish kids from Cleveland, Ohio, who wanted to express something of their immigrant experience in a comic book form. Superman coded very Jewishly. He's from the old country, which is the source of his power and his weakness. So mm. kryptonite could kill him. 
and he gains power because he's from somewhere else. And I like that he is his, he's really Kal-El. That's who he really is. And Clark Kent is his false exterior. So it's almost like the meek Jewish archetype is not who the Jewish kid really is. Mm -hmm. He's really deep down like the superhero. That's who he really is. So I like that flip on the secret identity, which is the false one versus the mm. superhero one being the false one. Mm-hmm. Michael Shaban did a great interview on NPR years ago about the Jewish tropes in Superman. Mm-hmm. I don't have it, but it's out there. It's very good. All right, let us turn to our main topic, golems, protectors or perils. So the first question we wanted to address is, where does this story even come from? Right. Yeah. So just to to give kind of a overview of where we're going with this, the reason that we were interested in this topic is that we noticed that the golem archetype appears in a lot of places in popular culture, well outside of the Jewish tradition. And yet this is a legendary figure that is very, very much rooted in in Jewish traditions. And so we wanted to explore more about about that, like why that might be, what what are some of the themes that are raised by the Golem story that make it so compelling and have continued to make it so so interesting and compelling to a wide variety of audiences. So the Golem of Prague is probably one of the best known or well-known Golem stories. It was actually written in the 1800s in Germany. So interesting that it's talking about this Golem that's created in Prague. Maybe to back up for a bit, we can explain what is a Golem. It it seems to be a a creature, human-like figure that is created out of earth or clay and through some process we'll get into a little bit more about what that might be or look like in different versions of the story is brought to life by someone who knows the either correct incantations or process to do that and then doesn't really have its own volition but can be sent to do what you would like it to do. So in the Golem of Prague story, interestingly, the Golem is created by Judah Loeb, the Maharal of Prague, the chief rabbi of Prague, who was well known, a real person who was also a Kabbalist, as many rabbis at the time were. But this, and we don't know any stories about whether or not he actually created a Golem, but this this story suggests that he he did, and the golem is acting in the role of protector for the Jewish community against anti-Semitic attacks. So that's the general story. In terms of the the origin of where we get the idea of the golem, it goes back quite a bit. Looking at the Hebrew bible interestingly the word the hebrew root that golem comes from really only appears a couple of times and only once in the sense that seems to be directly related 
to the idea of the golem. So the one that that seems to be most directly related comes from Psalms and and Psalm 139 verse 16. It's talking about God addressing God saying, your eyes saw my unformed limbs. In Hebrew, it's a goal me. (laughs) They were all recorded in your book in due time. They were formed to the very last one of them. So get the sense of the golem or that word as being related to something unformed, like maybe physical, physical body. Andrew, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Some of the dictionaries that we were looking at call it either a formless mass or even a pupa stage Mm -hmm. of creation, something that's not yet finished, but on its way to being finished. It is the only instance of golem in the entire Hebrew Bible. And that is always a fun thing coming across a a one-off word. Mm-hmm. Um, and we the, the next place you see the idea of a golem appear is in commentaries looking back at the creation of Adam, the first human. And we saw in second century rabbinic midrash by Rabbi Yochanan that you know on that day of creation. God gathers the dust together and makes a golem, this unformed clay mass, and then breathes life into it. And then the human then comes to life. And Nachmanides commenting on that talks a lot about the different levels of souls that humans have from plant, animal, and human Mm -hmm. to grow, to move, and then to speak. And golems often don't have the ability to speak. And then there was one. There's one passage in the Talmud. Why don't you mention that one? The one like very golem-esque Talmudic passage from Sanhedrin. Right. I mean, so there are a couple. Like, they're all sort of clustered in Sanhedrin. There's this this teaching. The one that that makes a clear clearest connection between. Adam and the Golem comes from yeah, Sanhedrin 38a in the Babylonian Talmud. It says, it's taught in a Brita that Rabbi Meir would say that the dust that served to form Adam, the first human being, was gathered from the entire world. And then they use as a proof text that verse from Psalms that we talked about that includes like the, the Golem. Like, Your eyes saw my Golmi, or my unshaped flesh. And then they use another proof text to indicate, okay, that means that God has the ability to sort of see and perceive the entire world. So the the takeaway being here that, right, that Adam, the first human being, was a golem, right? It's like golmi is, is that unshaped matter. Before God takes that and forms it and breathes life into it and the same with this thing that we're going to come to talk about as a golem yeah. that perhaps the difference is only like one of like what kind of soul or spirit does it have and who is capable of imbuing it with that soul right and are they allowed to are they allowed to exactly right. okay. so one of the one of the features of that quoted verse 
from Psalms is that it was done in secret, which is often a motif in golem stories. It mentions something being written, I'll say fair, on a scroll. So a lot of writing down some words feature crucially into most golem stories. So a lot of the elements that kind of form the myth have little hints in this one verse. And some of the more anti-Semitic ones focus on that it's being created in the lower depths, which mm. will get to sort of some of the anti-Semitic uses of the golem motif, specifically in the German 1920 film, The Golem, How He Came to the World, definitely plays on that as well. So, I mean, just to pick up a bit, right? So after that one passage in Sanhedrin that, we, that I just mentioned, then there's an extension of this where it really talks about Adam and the process of God creating the first human being. So we start to see sort of like, what's the the trajectory of like creating a being like this? Maybe it kind of offers the roadmap for later people who might want to try their own hand at it. So this is also in Sanhedrin 38b. So they're talking about what God did on the day of creating the first human being. So in the first hour of the day, the dust was gathered. And in the second hour, this undefined figure, the golem was, was created. And then like, the limbs are extended, soul is put into him standing him up and etc and they kind of you know continue on with a lot of elements of of the story of creation including eve eating the fruit from the tree that they're not supposed to eat from all occur on one day according to this this Agada. what a day what a day it was quite a day but the word golem is used in this passage to talk about this it's intriguing that it's actually before the limbs are formed it's really like a, a clump of earth very pupil yeah. in that sense of but, the yeah. that meaning of the word not even fully formed even in terms of the actual shape it's pre-shaped mm -hmm. right. it is like the primordial embryonic drop that then becomes differentiated in his commentary to it it's interesting that this follows that it's just like the the mass of clay itself yeah before it's yeah. even sculpted so yeah i was just thinking about that like as you you pointed out right the the first there's like this golem is created is made that's all we get in the hebrew then only after that the limbs are formed and it's like you know it very much resonates with a lot of these the images of God as being the the potter or, and, you know, I, before we got on this call, I was just having a, a meeting to talk about the high holidays. And we definitely have like PU team that talk about God as being, you know, a creator in a lot of different ways. And one of the images as a potter, I, and I also particularly resonated with this because I work with clay i'm doing ceramics and and taking classes that involve throwing pottery on the wheel and with anything whether you're doing hand building technique but particularly with the wheel what you said really reminded me of that because you're literally you have to take a lump of clay before you start with anything like that's all it is and you know with the wheel you have to throw it down 
get it secured on there. It's just this sort of shapeless mass. You have to have that material and ready to go in a certain kind of way before you can really form it into a meaningful shape. Ah, and the golem stage. It's in the golem stage, right? It's like, this is the golem stage. And it's not totally nothing, right? It's like this, like first you're getting like the dust is gathered. Okay, you've got the material. Before I'm gonna, you know, make something out of it, you're actually trying to make sure it's in, you want it to be like a ball and not too many air bubbles in there and make sure it's in good good shape. So maybe that's golem form. <laughs> and then the next step is what are you gonna do to actually shape it into something? So that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. So some of the themes that this story raises are already hinted at. So there's one more Talmudic passage to mention. In the Talmud, also in Sanhedrin, Rava creates a gavra, a man. The, The commentaries say it's a golem. It doesn't say how he made it. The commentary says that using the forces of sanctity, which we'll get to. Rabbi sent his creation before Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera spoke to this Gavra, this man, but the Gavra wouldn't respond at all. And Rabbi Zera figures out, oh, you were created by one of the Chavraya, one of the group, who is the group. Um, and then he says to this man form who cannot speak, return to your dust. And then it does. And... <laughs> Commentaries generally say, oh, Rava used Sefer Yetzirah, this old text of Jewish mysticism about how God creates the universe with letters to create a golem and that is sent out. It cannot speak because it doesn't have that level of soul. And Rabbi Zera sees that, oh, he made a golem and he goes to the member of the group and says, you have to undo this. This thing is a problem. And so undo it. And they do. And it turns back into a far dust. So that's like the clearest golem story. It doesn't use the word golem, but it has some of the motifs of mm-hmm. being obedient, unable to speak. Although the Golem of Prague actually can speak. Hmm. That one can, but in many stories, the power of speech is not present right. in the Golem. Right. There's a lot of commentaries about, like, expand, like, oh, the, 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 this story, the Talmud is actually like a mini version of a larger one. And they do quote sort of some of the earlier versions of this legend, placing it back in the time of the prophets between Jeremiah who's the rebuker and Ben Sira, who actually makes the creature from earth. Mm-hmm. So that's some like the earlier stuff. And that begins to get us into some of the themes that the golem raises using the forces of sanctity. I guess that first one is the religious, you know, what are the religious ideas that the golem story brings up? It is, you know, the use of esoteric or mystical knowledge to create something. And all of the golem examples in pop culture that really pick up on that often mention Sefer Yitzirah, the book of creation, and or its commentaries as the source of the knowledge. I think Rabbi Lowe of Prague's does, you he uses Sefer Yitzirah, and there's these letter alphabetic combinations you can use to create the proper language to then bring this 
clawed formed into human shape into a low level of life so right, right and it, it gets into like the power of language with the with Sefer Yitzhira definitely is very very big on that language is actually how God creates and I was I was thinking about in terms of this that you know given that God no longer intervenes in direct ways so it seems that <laughs> using esoteric knowledge that comes from a mystical text is an indirect way for God to help out people who are in crisis. They have yeah. the ability, secret knowledge, to make a protector for themselves that will then, you know, step in for divine providence in the protective sense of the word mm-hmm. in lieu of God. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the, this is a theme that we see throughout, you know, different practices of Jewish mysticism throughout the medieval period where you start seeing people writing books that refer to the process by which you would go about creating a golem. And, you know, this invocation of divine names, so this idea, you know, or special letter combinations is a theme that you see throughout a lot of different Jewish mystical practices that coalesce in a particular way in the medieval period. And that's where you start seeing, you know, the recording of like, oh, how would you go about creating a golem if you were going to do this? Because the Talmud story does not tell us anything about how this was was done. Heavily redacted. It was heavily, heavily redacted for everyone's protection. Right. There you go. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the themes that we were talking about, right? That emerge. There's who has the knowledge and how would one actually go about doing this and this focus on language and and maybe we can refer to some of the ways that that plays out in some of the depictions of the golem is that the word that you, you often have the right word emet which means truth inscribed somewhere on the golem's body so often on the forehead I think, Andrew, you were talking about an example where it was on the hand. Yeah, in the X-Files, there's a, uh, a Hasidic man is murdered, and he appears to have come back from the dead and is attacking and killing his murderers, and it looks us like him, and he has the word emet written between his thumb and forefinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he is unanimated, they simply rub off the olive, and he just turns back into clay right Uh, because when you take away the word aleph you're left with mem and taf which spells mate which means dead like he's a dead body in the disney animated series gargoyles which i watched one episode of for this episode rabbi judalo's descendant has a dream of rabbi judalo who tells him the proper formula to write and it's a much longer formula it's more like let this soul inhabit the body and let this body come to life, written in Hebrew. And mm-hmm. to the gargoyle creator's great credit, the Hebrew was written very well on screen, pronounced by this Jewish man very well. And interestingly, pronounced not so well when the bad guy's henchman did it, kind of <laughs> a nod where he's not very good at Hebrew. I thought that was kind of cool. But they basically, they fold up the paper, they stick it in his mouth, just like feeding 
a punch card to a computer mm -hmm. and it just boots up and it's hmm. life. So there's no Emmet at all in that version. Uh, right. Um, is Emmet almost like the simplest language version of the story? Right. Yeah. And I mean, right, from the, the commentaries that we saw on, on the, the story in the Talmud that go into more detail, it seems to be, oh, actually, there's like some more complicated like code involved, which would be much more consistent with practical Kabbalah and Jewish magical practices of the medieval period. And so I'd be interested to read the commentary on Sefer Yitzirah from the Hasidei Ashkenaz that give instructions for creating a golem how detailed and specific do they get about that they kind of allude to the permutations so it's like you still have to be involved in this oral transmission with a knowledgeable teacher who would tell you the proper combinations i guess that's yeah. what they seem to be saying it reminds me of like dna sequencing you know mm -hmm. given a very specific vocabulary you can create life Right. It, that, that resonates with me when I think about being able to put together a DNA sequence that would simply, from raw materials, create something that you could say is actually alive. Warehouse mm -hmm. 13, there's an, they have the golem's amulet, which has emet on the amulet, mm. that is used to create a biotech virus that turns human beings into clay. That then begins to alter their DNA to turn them into computer code, just clods. It's very, it's a little mm -hmm. weirder. Definitely playing off the Golma Prague motif, but taking in a not such a consistent way, but it's playing on the motif for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the process and then, I mean, Another one of the themes is, can or should human beings even be doing this? Is it an act of hubris or, as we often see, is a theme in many religious texts when, you know, human beings get too close to playing God or trying to be God-like, that's a violation of how things should be. And then also this question of what is within human capacity to even do? We saw in that story in the Talmud with Rabbi Zira and this Gavra, this human man who was created, he's able to just say, go back to your dust and he in my mind's eye sort of dissolves. What capacity do human beings have to create life in this way? And how does that relate to God's capacity? Where do we cross the line? And where do we cross the line? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, Frankenstein as a golem story, mm -hmm. instead of the secret knowledge being Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, that secret knowledge is then new science to reanimate dead flesh into living flesh, definitely gets at this hubris motif as well in probably the most well-known modern golem story after golden Prague, which is the story of frankenstein's monster mm -hmm. all about you know how far can we go in terms of science which we talked about last week with ai last month with ai you know what is the limit beyond which we should not go and you know, the golem definitely raises up that issue mm -hmm. another issue that you mentioned was how the golem story raises the topic of how we relate to the material world 
and how mm. golems challenge the boundaries between life and inanimate matter. Mm. How do we relate to that which is not human on the planet? Golems are often simply told what to do. They have no autonomy. They have no rights. They're merely protectors or servants, and they just do what they're told. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And I think that, you know, connects with the previous question, too, about human capacity for creating. Because as we had, had noted in the creation story of the first human being, interpretations of it where the word golem is actually used in talking about the sort of unformed matter of the first human being, Adam, which literally means earth um, or is connected to the Hebrew word earth. There's no distinction in the material element between a human being as created by God and a golem as created by human beings. But the distinction seems to be about maybe soul, intellect, some kind of capacity. And we see this in, in one of the commentaries on the text in, in Sanhedrin or in the Marit Ha'ain. We're asking a question, if a human that's created by the means offered in Sefirah can count in a minion, like a quorum of 10 adult Jews required to do certain ritual actions, which is an interesting question. Um, but they get into a conversation about, okay, well, if you're going to say that a golem could do this, then you'd have to actually entertain the question of whether you could count an animal. So it starts to, you know, re-engage that sort of hierarchy of being that seemed to be drawn out by Nachmanides in his commentary on the Genesis story that we talked about. Right, because you and I, when we mentioned this continuum of beings, we had put initially golems just above the inanimate below plants and animals, but this places them right alongside animals just below human beings. Right. Which was, which was a surprise to rethink that hierarchy of beings the golems were actually quite high up far beyond the inanimate because of the levels of soul that a golem is supposed to have yeah in theory, right. in theory. so so reading the marit hain he said okay this creature that's made by sefer yitzirah which is an animal in human form who only has the power of the lower soul, like an animal. So he's basically saying they're in this hierarchy. There's animals do have a soul. It's just a different category than human beings. It says animal. And one of the differentiations that is made here between animals and humans are that animals can't speak, which is a characteristic that, at least in this text, is shared with the golem. It says, for the power of speech and knowledge come from the eternal, that is God alone, as it is written, and God blew into his nose, his being the first human being, the breath of life. That's the highest level of soul, which yeah, is which includes the capacity for speech. So I'll raise another sort of sub point to that. So if there are other animals that actually have the power of speech, well, then they're not animals. Then they're something between animal and human, or even like near sapient. And mm -hmm. it's like the golem raises that question, 
where if they're so if, if they just lack all speech that's and that's what makes them an animal well then if chimpanzees dolphins and whales actually have speech well then mm-hmm. they're in another category right or what qualifies as speech and then this also raises a lot of problematic stuff potentially about disability and people who are nonverbal and or people who might have intellectual disabilities right it's like Mm -hmm. unfortunately for some of these traditional sources where they are in the business of ranking or classifying beings on the basis of some of these abilities as being indicative of whether or not you have a soul does this mean that they would say certain human people that we would refer to as people as human beings fully formed human beings are somehow not on that level and that's not a way that i would want to see these texts being interpreted but wouldn't surprise me so that um, raises the issue of the cheresh the person of the that the cheresh in halakha is the deaf mute right they assumed for centuries and centuries that the cheresh was exempt from most commandments because they had no intellect because they could not communicate of course as we understand now as deaf language is more understood and we understand now that people who cannot communicate verbally still have intellectually lots going on the category of the cheresh has changed quite a Mm -hmm. lot especially in the 20th century where Mm -hmm. a lot of the restrictions understandings have been challenged and changed by a lot of halakhic authors mm-hmm. um, and now can count in the minion become bar bat mitzvah etc yeah so there has been a lot of change in that regard mm-hmm. okay <laughs> anything and, and else we want to see? I, I think that kind of for me that kind of covers the material piece so the political it was the next motif that we noted that came up you know, what kind of residence does the golem have for social or political dynamics? You mentioned they're often protectors or servants, and there certainly is a a kind of powerlessness, especially in the Golem of Prague story, where there's a blood libel being levied against the Jews, and they don't have any power to protect themselves. They're living in a walled ghetto at the time in the story and they need extra protection beyond the walls and the doors and so rabbi Lowe creates in a pinch in this emergency crisis this very very dangerous thing creates the golem to give them political power to give them protective power against an angry mob Mm -hmm. Um, the golem comes to stand in the breach to protect Mm -hmm. which i heard didn't confirm this that in particular, Captain America was conceived as a golem-type figure where special knowledge, like the science used to create the super soldier serum, was used to create a protector of American interests that would mm-hmm. basically do whatever the government wanted. So he was mm-hmm. golem-esque in his at least initial formation. The golem as a, as a superhero is mm-hmm. original to the golem prog story. He is this right. hero of clay who protects the weak and the vulnerable. Yeah. Right. I feel like there's lots of other questions that this is raising for me too Ooh, around like, like I mean, particularly right as we're exploring the idea of the golem as this like protector and strength and connecting it with the 
idea of creating this golem-like figure that almost like doesn't have a will of its own and that can be like used by according to the whim of the U.S. government. And in a lot of ways, people who serve in the armed forces are essentially treated that way. Mm. They, they no you know, you, you're focusing on developing physical strength, ability to, you know, operate and use equipment and weapons and following orders. And so there's questions around agency that come up. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I think also, you know, interesting questions that I've seen raised about our contemporary society, about the role of men and masculinity and hearing men speak about the ways in which they feel like their value or the narratives that they received kind of like growing up about like what it means to be a man and their value have more to do with the being this physical being in service of others as opposed to being able to have your own agency or self-determination so submitting um, your will to the authorities for the great yeah that's very interesting the, you know one of the shows where this notion of golem is used metaphorically is the sopranos Tony is asked by a Hasidic man to put some physical pressure on the son-in-law who's abusing his daughter. And the brother of the, the woman is angry at the father for turning Tony into basically a golem, a person mm -hmm. who is carrying out his orders with no autonomy and no moral responsibility to act on his own and to say no that's, that's nothing really comes of it mm -hmm. uh, but the, the metaphor of you know the the soldier taking orders as a golem mm -hmm. comes up there yeah um, yeah and i mean it's a real sense. problem that you hear around support for veterans after they return especially as we've been involved in these forever wars as people are talking about it these long-term military presence in Afghanistan, in Iraq, that the general public hasn't been so actively engaged with in a lot of ways. And the way that service members can feel like throwaways, essentially. You're sent to do this and then not received and integrated well when you return home. Right. Are they just seen as just like clods of earth? Yeah. No I think in a lot of ways, yes. I think in also the ways you know, that depending on one's social position, if you're from, you know, more impoverished backgrounds, you don't have as many obvious career pathways in front of you. Those folks are often ripe for recruitment by the armed forces because you get training or continue your education after your service. But it also means, right, people are using the resource that they have, which is their physical body, um, and putting themselves at or being put in a position of considerable physical risk under someone else's control. It's interesting, you know, the idea of the golem when the golem is done, having the word dead on his forehead, at least in some of the versions, but it speaks to it in a horrifying way, the experience of a soldier returned from war sort of being seen as like the living dead. 
Mm-hmm. It's not really even being fully alive. You know, PTSD certainly. Mm-hmm. You know, can just the trauma of war can keep people from fully returning to normal life once they are decommissioned. Right. Uh, and a lot of the the lack of understanding and social support making that integration process even more difficult. One of the golem appearances in pop culture that ties in the rights of those who are not generally given their autonomy, but who deserve autonomy, and how we relate to the material world is in Terry Pratchett's novel, Feet of Clay, about Mm -hmm. golems who were used as automatons in the harshest of situations. They have their programming code in their mouths, and they do whatever they're told to do tirelessly forever if there's a crank wheel at the bottom of the ocean that needs turning they'll do it forever like they'll do whatever you ask but dorful one of the golems in the city of Ankh-Morpork begins to demand rights so mm-hmm. he begins a golem rights campaign to treat golems not just as machines but as beings that also have souls and that mm-hmm. they also be taken seriously as people and not just treated as robots so it's not a horrifying robotic uprising it's a much gentler robotic awakening or gum awakening of that oh we have rights as beings as well Mm -hmm. just different than you like we'll do the work but we'd like to have also some compensation or some acknowledgement as well and some kind of benefits like they're not saying they're not going to work but they'd like to have some acknowledgement that they actually are valuable yeah, I mean, this is all also making me right, think about any number of campaigns for human rights and in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, this sort of hierarchy of souls and the fictional campaign for rights very much parallel what's happened in our world that often in order to legitimize you know, the coercion into labor, whether it's slavery or some other kind of harsh working conditions. There's often this narrative of some people being less than fully human that I think kind of can track with this sort of hierarchy of of souls. Like Mm. if someone doesn't have full human soul, then maybe you can take advantage of them in some kind of way. And that has been used to justify the practice of slavery in this country, for example, and elsewhere. There's danger inherent there too. That's a that's a really interesting case in this fictional case where maybe the golems do have a different kind of being than human beings in that Terry Pratchett narrative. And how do we think about the rights of different kinds of beings? There's a lot of conversation, right? Conversations around animal rights, like that, mm-hmm. we, that are, you know, and this is being engaged even in the, like the legal system. There are cases that are being brought. When do animals have like exploring the, the boundaries of how we think about animal rights in our society? And I think there have even been starting to think about other kinds of entities like an environment or biome or something as having rights. I 
think I've started to see this too. And so this question about golems fits into this bigger question around how do we think about being and this idea of maybe it's not even about autonomy or the ability to act autonomously that gives you status or rights, that that's all being reevaluated in a lot of different ways. Right. So if a golem is just a physical collection of atoms and molecules that either serves or protects, well, then any collection of molecules that serves or protects also might have defensible status in a court, like a biome, like you just said, like a biome. You know, if there is a, you know, does the ozone layer have rights? <laughs> it, it protects us from harmful radiation, but it, it cannot raise its own defense. It doesn't have the power of speech. Does it have to remain undefended? I mean, people do advocate for the ozone layer, just for mm -hmm. one example, because it cannot speak for itself. Let's bring up the Lorax, you know, right. who speaks for the trees, right? right? Trees both protect and serve in so many ways but they have no advocate. So mm -hmm. Dorfel, who is the golem, I guess speaks up for all golems in mm -hmm. this world and advocates for their rights. And I guess mm -hmm. in a very similar way, people advocate for the rights of biomes and animals who just do not have the power of speech. Right. And not only that, I mean, we've talked about even before getting there, it's like there's there have been processes of expanding who we think of as being fully human in our world that have involved some people either speaking on behalf of or allowing or finally a voice from among the populations that are being dehumanized being able to gain a voice that's heard mm -hmm. um right we were having a conversation before we started getting on the podcast about a particular source but i think there are lots of ways that women have been thought of as not being fully human or not being of the same status as men in a like ontological way in a lot of different cultural and philosophical systems and considering women to have the same intellectual or spiritual capacity as men in western society is a fairly new thing too yeah there's also a lot of conversation about rights of children it's like all of the the conversations that emerge around like who has who has rights as an autonomous individual and like there are some people who reach some very disturbing conclusions if you have to have some kind of ability to perceive or engage with the world well human infants don't attain that there's also a lot of horrifying thing, right advocacy for people with disabilities who gets to speak on behalf of whom and be able to claim you know the right to integrity your bodily integrity and autonomy and or at least the right to be able to to exist right that, that's what we're talking about. None of this is simple because then it, you know, touches on all kinds of medical ethics and bioethics kinds of questions as well, or potentially can. Yeah. It touches on the issue of abortion mm -hmm. and the permissibility of abortion. Yes. Beginning and end of um, life is often where a lot of biomedical ethics yeah. cluster. We did find that one source, which I will not quote verbatim, that definitely <laughs> portrayed women as not finished as beings until they were 
conjugally married to a man, which was mm-hmm. horribly offensive. Like, wow, that definitely mm-hmm. puts women as second class citizens in a most horrifying way in rabbinic literature. Thankfully, mm-hmm. it was a solitary opinion, but still on the books and ugh, not not one that I agree with in the slightest. Yeah, I'm not surprised particularly. And as we were talking about in a lot of Greek philosophy and medieval philosophy influenced by Greek philosophy that has been influential on a lot of later thought, women were seen as being ontologically inferior to men, not having the same level of spiritual capacity or even soul maybe in this kind of hierarchical ranking system that we're talking that we've seen in in reference to the creation story and golems and where they might fit in which raises all kinds of questions and but all of this is an integrated conversation around like yeah who has rights and what entitles you to them and how have our understandings around that shifted over time and continue to shift I think one motif of the Golem story often that also comes back to this is when the Golems in many versions of the story begin to understand that they are living beings who have wants and desires. It's often in the form of unrequited love. That's kind of Mm -hmm. one of the Mm -hmm. most common motifs. In the 1920s film, the Gentile courtier, who's the emissary to the Jews, who brings them the good and the bad news from the emperor, and I think Rabbi Lowe's son and the golem all love the same young Jewish woman. And they are fighting over her. She is having an affair with the Gentile, and that frustrates the rabbi's son, and the golem is also in love with her as well. And, you know, Frankenstein, I think, has unrequited love in mm-hmm. some of the versions. And the Golem of Prague has his existential crisis, especially when the Golems go out of control. Like when the Golems, because they are not autonomous, they, they tend to follow directions very literally, just feed them directions and they do what they're told, you know, like code to a computer, they still have this desire for fulfillment and to live and then, of course, they often, in the end, deactivate the golem when they get out of control, denying them full life. So mm-hmm. back to your point where does the golem deserve to live or not, even though they may be a little wild, maybe they mm-hmm. do deserve to have a fulfilling life, even if they are difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that definitely comes up quite a bit. So in the movie from the 20s, the golem is wearing on his chest a five-pointed star, and we'll come back to the anti-Semitic overtones of that in a bit. Instead of which is the word emet on a scroll, and they're trying to grab it. He's like protecting it from being ripped off of his body because the moment it's taken off, he just simply falls over. Mm-hmm. And so he's guarding his life, which is, he, which he wears on his chest, and he's very vulnerable to being turned off and on very quickly. But he, he tries to guard it carefully, and he fails in the end, of course, as... The Prague story, he always fails. He always is rendered inert in the end, waiting to be reactivated when the time comes. Kind of like Captain America in the ice. Mm -hmm. Bringing it back. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. 
Yeah. So the existentialist theme, right to your question, who deserves to live mm -hmm. is brought up very squarely in a lot of golem stories in that way. Given all of these really interesting themes about the golem raises, you know, I would say to our listeners, go look at the golems in pop culture. There are so many books, so many movies, so many TV shows that have a golem episode or a golem theme. There's Iron Giant, X-Files, Warehouse 13, Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon, and so many novels. Minecraft has golems. D&D has a golem. There's a board game set in Prague where you're playing a rabbi mm -hmm. controlling a golem. Supernatural has it, and so on and so forth. There is so much interesting golem stuff out there go and see how these motifs play out in any or all of these different versions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to go check some of these out that I haven't seen. Yeah. There's so many. I actually asked a golem. I asked chat GPT for, <laughs> they gave me a very long list. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Chat GPT golem shout out for helping help do some research for this month's episode. I thought that would be on point. All right. All right. So let's turn to From the Geniza. From the Geniza. Uh, we talked about, since the fifth one just came out, The Dial of Destiny. Look back at the Indiana Jones movies, all five of them, and some of our thoughts on those films, whether you love, hate, or tolerate them. I, okay. I, I, I don't understand how anyone could hate all Indiana Jones films. No, like, no. But the fourth one the is the most hateable. Christmas yeah. Doll. I haven't rewatched yeah. it yet. I'm afraid to rewatch it. Mm. I rewatched all other three. I rewatched Lost Ark, Last Crusade, and Temple of Doom. I rewatched all of those in anticipation of the Dial of Destiny coming out. And glad I did. There were a few callbacks to everything, which is kind of nice. In um, the Dial of Destiny. Yes, mm -hmm. there's like nice callbacks. Especially the the final scene of the Dial of Destiny has a very nice callback to Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was very sweet. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was a nice way to, to wrap things up. And in particular, I mean, my favorite is The Last Crusade. I rank them Last Crusade, Lost Ark, Dial of Destiny, Temple of Doom, Crystal Skull. That's my favorite to least favorite. And putting The Dial of Destiny as number three is pretty high praise in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, no. When you said that, I was like, okay, it's definitely worth watching. And then now I, I, I put Last Crusade above Lost Ark. It's just my favorite of the three. Yeah. Just love it so much. So I rewatched The Temple of Doom with the new understanding that it is a goofball comedy, mm -hmm. that it was a little bit of a genre shift from the swashbuckling adventure to a very silly movie that's a little over the top portrays india in a bit of a caricature and mm -hmm. that helped i appreciated it more as like a light-hearted romp and not so much a swashbuckling serious adventure movie mm -hmm. um, it was much more enjoyable not taking it too seriously and i love the lost crusade sean connery is great as harrison ford's father oh yeah even though they only have a 12-year age difference. I still believed it. It worked. Yeah. It yeah. was good. It was good. It was good. When did you first see the movies? 
I don't remember. I definitely saw them either on video or like the first, you know, three, like on video or when they were playing it on TV or something like that. Definitely saw them quite a few times as I was growing up. Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade in particular didn't rewatch Temple of Doom so much. I think the themes are similar and the adventurous nature of it. There's religious uh objects of significance and nazis and both so in my mind they just all get mushed together like what specifically happens and like which one yeah um, leading a lot up of nazis. to like, a lot of nazis. lots of nazis and like trying to remember okay oh when's the like book burning scene in berlin and like where he gets his book signed by hitler and it's pretty funny that's when they have the the german girl woman who like yes betrays him okay dr schneider <laughs> Dr. Schneider. Yeah. Is that the one with the Zeppelin too? Or is that... Yes, it is. I love that. Like the scene where it's like, no ticket. And the guy gets punched out. And everybody's no like, tickets. <laughs> yeah. Round in Tableau Doom. I forgot how cute he was. Hmm. He played Data yeah. in The Goonies. And just one supporting yeah. actor for everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh. Which I've yet to see. That was like his big yeah. comeback in Hollywood. Nice. Yeah, it was cool that he won the Oscar. Spielberg was there. Kate Capshaw was there. Harrison Ford was there. They were all in the room when he won the Oscar. And they were all on Temple of Doom. Oh, that's cool. That was very touching. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the themes that I've seen now in rewatch videos is they all have this god light, this golden light that appears in all the movies. But Indiana Jones experiences something mm -hmm. beyond what can be explained the light of the mm -hmm. mysterious, the numinous, the divine, whatever it is, it's always there. It's the gold of the ark. It's the glowing mm -hmm. of the stones in Temple of Doom. It's the Holy Grail glimmering. And it's definitely the Dial of Archimedes in the Dial of Destiny. Mm -hmm. That motif, his brushes with the beyond, the mysterious, the unknown, which he acknowledges. He's like, every now and then I see things that I just can't explain. And he lives knowing that the world is very weird. You mentioned, are they coded for boys or girls? These movies. Oh, Indiana Jones? I bring up that question with a lot of things. I feel like Indiana Jones is such a crowd pleaser. I, I feel like people of lots of different ages, genders, can be engaged by these movies. I loved them. There's definitely the, you know, didn't hurt that Harrison Ford is, you know, an attractive fellow so some of the ladies yeah and, and which is like played up you know he's like the hot professor that all of the students are trying to you know like there's the one woman who writes like i love you on yes her, love you on her eyelids. eyelids where she's like blinking at him right so um, the opening like, clamoring about... to get in his class yeah right so in Del destiny they're falling asleep yeah so yeah, he's like, lost that allure. he's not hot anymore it's like hot. They, they really show you but this bookended scene they're on their desks he mentions in last crusade that his father is the professor you hope you don't get he's kind of become mm. his father in that sense yeah, mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. and of course Maybe he's that's... lecturing about the exact thing that he'll be dealing with in the movie what a coincidence mm -hmm. i did learn that there was an august 13th parade for the astronauts who went to the moon first time like that is an accurately placed event in the movie 
Hmm. But what's weird is he's lecturing a class during summer. I'm like, is this summer school? Like, what's going on here? Why is he retiring in the middle of summer? I don't get it. That was a little strange, hmm. but whatever. Right. Um, that's the only thing that seemed factually. In <laughs> yeah, that's where they lost me. They lost this, me. Yeah. Like, what? He lecturing in summer? What is going on here? That's where they lost me. Yeah. Not time travel. I'm fine with that. Time they travel, lost me that, with like fine. the whole semester system is where I really fell down flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, there's All a question. Right. Will his goddaughter, Helena, will she pick up the hat and do other things? Are they going to continue an offshoot? Who knows? Maybe. But Phoebe Waller-Bridge was great. She's so funny. You watched Fleabag? I have. I felt a number of times recently that I need to rewatch it because don't very detail. Yeah. But she's very. I enjoy her acting. Yeah, she was the in. A, there was another show that she was in that didn't survive for very long. That I yes, watched. I don't know. But don't she's what it was called, but. Definitely making a mark, and I think we're just starting to see the beginning of her in a lot yes. of great stuff. I guess she's playing Laura Croft next too. Ooh, that'll Laura be fun. Croft movie, or at least Tomb Raider. I did Laura Croft, yeah, but you know, right. stepping into the adventure movie genre. Yeah, I don't know. She has to follow. If she had to follow Angelina Jolie in that role, that that would be you know kind of tough. Yeah, that's why I'm thinking maybe it's Tomb Raider, but not specifically Laura Croft. Okay. Right. like another character in the tomb raider world or maybe she's a villain i have no idea actually so that concludes our sixth episode of sacred realms golems protectors or perils thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a jewish lens and come back to hear more our next episode will come out in about a month and will be on a theme to be determined. Indeed. If you like this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. And thank you for all of our positive reviews and emails thus far. This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. And me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. We recorded on Zoom and edited using Descript. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. May the Mephorshim be with you.